This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 610, and the quote of the day is, the choices you make now, the people you surround yourself with, they all have the potential to affect your life, even who you are, forever. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 610, and I am so happy that you're here. This episode is great, and before we get into it, I have to thank my good friend, Mr. Dylan Wissing, for connecting me and Chris. And Chris is someone who I've I've known about, didn't know him personally, and uh, I'm, I'm really excited to have him on the podcast. And Chris started his career in the 80s. He's, he played on the smash hit What I Am by Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians and also played with the Waterboys. And then a big break in his career happened when he started playing with Paul McCartney and played on not only his record Flowers in the Dirt, but then also played on the huge record-breaking world tour in 1989 and 90 for that record. And then right after that, embarked on a mammoth 18-month-long On Every Street world tour with Dire Straits. And from there, he went on to collaborating and producing sound samples and things like that for Roland and for himself and and has done a slew of studio work and uh, film and television and all sorts of things and has all of these amazing stories and and how they came to be and and the way that he navigated through those different those different parts of his career. So if you're looking to learn from someone who's been there and done that, look no further than Mr. Chris Witten. Let's get into it. Chris, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Sometimes when I uh, when I start these, there's sometimes an apology is in order. So, and I like to publicly apologize. To people. Oh no! So uh, we had a little uh, scheduling mis- mix up. So I wanted right. to uh, to publicly no apologize. Apology for that. necessary. <laughs> I know I wasn't going anywhere anyway. Right. That's yeah. That's true. That's true. I've been at home for a year, so it's a bit of a shock. So what have you been doing for the last year since you're not on the road, guessing not a ton of sessions? No. Right? Well, or no sessions, doing some remote stuff? or There's um, no, none of that. And basically, you could meet up with people at times in the UK, but I've chosen not to because mm-hmm. I'm over 60 years old. My partner is an ICU nurse, so she knows exactly what the score is. And I just decided to just stay at home and... And once it got after like sort of six to nine months of being at home, I thought, well, I don't want to go out now and catch catch it. I'll be so angry with myself. <laughs> yeah, you've, you've made if it I this do far. That now. So we've we both, apart from her going to work, neither of us have really done anything for a year. So I right. played some, I played some pretty big shows at the end of 2019. In uh, we went to Mozambique and South Africa and played, which was incredible. Mm-hmm. And then. When we you had, say we, who were you? Well, were I you sort playing? of play. I don't. I don't do a lot of live playing. I've sort of backed off on that, and mm-hmm. um, I've got the sax player from Dire Straits, Chris White. He's a really good friend of mine. He's a really nice guy, and he started this Dire Straits sort of tribute band, really, um, 
about five years ago and they've got a regular drummer and but when he can't do it for some reason I drop in and do the show and quite often they do a lot of shows around Europe they're actually massive because Dire Straits don't play live anymore right so when Chris White takes his band out um they sell out big arenas and it's crazy that's nuts And, and so um Lucky for me that the regular drummer is always available for like the European shows. And whenever they have something further afield, a bit weirder, he's generally can't, can't make it. And so I get to go to all these amazing places. I've been to India with them. I've been to Malaysia with them, South Africa, Mozambique, places like that. So I kind of, I'm kind of over playing the music of Dire Straits. That was like 1991. And it feels like I'm going back in time, but I really enjoy it just from a point of view of going to these places I would never go to otherwise. There's no way mm. I was going to go to Mozambique. You know, right. just, I'm, I'm not that adventurous, really. No. But Chris Chris <laughs> called me up and said, we've got some shows in Mozambique. I'd really like you to do them. So I did them anyway. That was the end of 2019. And then March 2020, they had a bunch more shows and they were talking to me about, could I do a few and then the beginning of March, the whole world locked down, and that's been the end of it ever since. There's been no mm-hmm. – sh- they haven't played a single show since then, and there's no right. shows really. I think they've got a tentative booking for some shows in August, which I, which their regular drummer is going to do. So, yeah, there's been no shows. And um, I'm rabbiting. Don't, <laughs> I hope you don't mind me rabbiting. Um, this is what we're here for. <laughs> I just turn, I just ask one question and then I just sit back right. and that's it. <laughs> so my passion is studio drumming, really. I just love record. I just love the whole idea of recording and everything. So that's always been my number one thing. And I've been talking about doing remote recording for like over 20 years. And it just never happened for various reasons. About, about 2005, 2004, 2005, I started buying all the gear off eBay, like vintage Neumann mics and mm-hmm. and some really nice mic pre's, quad eight mic pre's and API and stuff like that. So I started putting all that stuff, but I lived in a suburban house in London with neighbors all around me. So there was no way I could record at home. And so my partner is Australian and she wanted to go back to Australia. So I thought, oh, well, this is a huge gamble. But if we go to Australia, I'll be able to buy a farm or something and have a big studio in a barn and do my remote recording from Australia. So 2005, we moved to Australia. And it took me about a year of house hunting to find the right place. So we bought this farm and then stupidly, I didn't really think about the internet. We had this quite nice farm with a big barn, but the internet was like dial up. And so <laughs> I realized that I couldn't really, I couldn't be recording like 96, 24 bit audio and sending it around the world from there. It would take a week to send right, one song. Right. Or you have to drive somewhere with the, fi- with the drive. Well, and- I would have had to drive like <laughs> two hours. <laughs> oh, gee. Which I know it's not very much in America or Australia, but it's against my principle to drive for two hours just to use the internet. I so, always looked at, at, at Ash Soane's place. Oh, and, yeah. And I, 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 the first thing I thought was, how does he have internet out there? It looks like it's in the middle of nowhere. Well, most places in the UK 
have got decent internet. I must say, again, I've screwed myself in that I bought this house in Somerset and we're in like an internet black spot. And I haven't, I've had unbelievably slow internet the whole time we've lived here. And I do send audio around, but it takes all night. I have to set it off at like mm. 11 o'clock at night and it's just finishing at eight in the morning when I get up. But anyway, recently two things happened. Somebody put me onto this sort of 4G Wi Fi company that put a dish on your roof. And so I've signed mm. up for that. And now I've got actually, I've got, I've got moderate download, but I've got very fast upload, which is exactly what I need to send files around. So I've got pretty and usually fast it's upload. the other way around. No, no, it's strange. Yeah. I don't know why it Perfect. is. I think it's because more people are using the 4G to download stuff and not many people are using it for uploading. And then also I decided when the when the pandemic started, I just decided that I had to just invest in myself. So I, I got to build a and we built this outbuilding on this tiny block of land next to the house. And so I've got a dedicated studio now and I've got the internet. So I'm, I am basically available for remote recording, but it's taken like 20 years. And <laughs> hey, I better late out, than never, right? I broke out all the mics and the outboard that I've been carrying around for 20 years and I'm finally mm -hmm. using them. So yeah, it's quite exciting. So what happened with the, the place in Australia? So that you bought this place and then... You were there for a little while until we can't oh, do this and move back? It took 10 years. But, well, yeah, it took us. Took me a year to find it. We bought it. And it was, if you've ever watched the movie The Money Pit, that's what it was. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was crazy. The people really lied, basically. And when it took, it took a couple of years for all this stuff to unfold. But we had a blocked toilet or something one day. We got the plumber in and he said, do you know what plumbing you've got? And I said, no, I've never, I don't, I wouldn't have a clue. And he said, you've got enough plumbing for like a one bedroom apartment. It's absolutely ridiculous. I don't know how it ever passed the council um, laws to oh, install wow. it. So we had to have all the plumbing replaced. And then um, another time our hot water wouldn't work anymore. And I got another guy in and he said, this boiler's a disaster waiting to happen. You've got to replace your boiler. So I just went on like that and it was just a massive money pit. And so I spent hundreds of thousands on it. And then Belinda, I was in the middle of no, it was a catch 22 because if you were in the city, like Sydney or Melbourne, there were lots of musicians around and I I could have been plugged into the scene, but mm -hmm. I couldn't make a noise because it's the same as every, it's not in America. You've got bigger houses with bigger blocks of land a bit, but in, in Europe and Australia, they're more, the houses more on top of each other. So I couldn't yeah. make a noise. So my idea was I buy this farm, old farm, two hours out of Sydney and I can make as much noise as I want. So when I did that, that I then isolated myself from all the other musicians. So I was just basically out there on my own, all the time so it was a bit of a catch-22 and Belinda after about eight years of this Belinda my partner said to me this is crazy you're not really doing anything you can't use the internet you're not playing with any bands we've got to move back to the UK and I just thought oh it was such an effort to get to Australia in the first place shipping all our stuff in a container yeah. across the world yeah. I can't I don't know if I can do it again Anyway, I thought about it for about six months and I eventually had to concede and say, you're right. So 
cut a very long story short, we shipped everything back and moved back to the UK. And actually, it's been great, apart from the rubbish weather, which I yeah. I hate the weather. It's cold. It's not like LA. It's cold <laughs> and damp all the time. I'm, um, from, I'm, I'm originally from the East oh, Coast, yeah, that's so, right. oh, so I, get the, I get the whole... I yeah. understand the weather. That's one of the biggest reasons why my wife and I are like, would we ever move back to the East Coast no. because of the weather? Yeah, yeah, it's, exactly. But I mean, well, culturally here, it's fantastic. The music mm-hmm. scene's amazing. And I've met lots of great musicians and I've been playing live again. And and so it was the right thing to do. So now we're living in Somerset in the West. Actually, we're only about 30 minutes away from Glastonbury. So oh, okay. There's loads of musicians around mm-hmm. here and there's loads of artists and writers and it's a really good community and there's organic farms and everything. So it's great from that point of view. The only thing we're missing is the sun. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you're in the studio most of the time. Anyways, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so when you had mentioned Dire Straits, um, so did you, was there someone in between you and Pick or did you take over right after? Pick? I know there was loads of people. Yeah. yeah. I mean... Um, I think Pick must have left about 1983 or something like that because they had Terry Williams around 1984 from Rockpile. Mm-hmm. And, and he, you, you joined in what, 89 or 90? 91, actually. 91, Yeah, I was okay. doing McCartney in 89, 90. Right. Oh, yeah, that was the big tour. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so Pick, they didn't want... They didn't want Pick to leave the band, but he decided he wanted to leave the band. So he left the band. It must have been around 93, uh, 83, sorry. 83, and then yeah. by, by 85, the brothers in art, well, they had Alchemy came out, and then the video of the tour for Alchemy has Terry Williams on drums, and that would must have been about 83, 84 or something. And then 85, uh, Brothers in Arms came out, and Terry Williams really wasn't on Brothers in Arms. It was Omar Hakim, I think. And they, they recorded it in yeah. Montserrat or somewhere. Yeah, yeah, got yeah. Omar Hakim in. <laughs> so Terry wasn't even on that album. Anyway, he did the tour, and it was a massive long tour, and it was when Money for Nothing was a hit, and they were mm-hmm. absolutely huge. And then I think Mark decided they were all going to retire. And, I mean, the album was massive. The tour was massively long, and they were all knackered. And then, yeah. and I think Ter- Terry retired or something. And then I think Mark got together with John. They were the only two founder members left, Mark and John, John the bass player, John Ilsey. And I think they got together for a meal or something around 89 or something. Mark said, do you fancy doing another album? And John was quite surprised uh, that he was being asked. And he said, oh, yeah, that would be great. Let's do it. And so it must have been around 1991 they made this album uh, on every street is the album mm-hmm. and they used primarily they used jeff Picaro for that and then they had a couple of tracks that they wanted to add towards the end and they got manny cachet in to play drums mm-hmm. on those tracks and then i didn't realize that jeff was on those tracks too oh no well that was the main reason i did the tour <laughs> yeah I'll come to <laughs> but um they um so they got to the end of the album and they decided they were going to do another tour. And I think Mark was pretty tired of all the stadium touring and everything, but they decided they would do a tour to promote the album. And Mark asked Jeff if he would play drums on the tour. And of course, Jeff 
was in Toto and he was a very busy studio drummer and he and he wasn't going to do like a year on the road with Dire Straits. Mm-hmm. So he right. just said, no, thanks. Thanks, but no thanks. And then I think they asked Manu Cachet and he said no. And I had just finished the McCartney tour and they contact, I had a manager at the time, they contacted my manager and said, we've seen Chris playing with Paul McCartney and we wondered if he'd be interested in doing the Dire Straits tour. And so I was kind of burnt out from doing the McCartney tour. And I said, no, I don't want to do another tour. And then they all went quiet for a month or so. And then they got they got in touch with my manager again and said, we'd really like Chris to do the tour. We, are you sure he won't do it? So then my manager started to pressure me to do it. <laughs> and um, I said, no, I had it in my head. I was just going to go back to studio work. Right. And because um, the McCartney thing was three years of more or less just McCartney, it was like a, a five day a week job in the studio. And then when you were on tour, you were just away on tour the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. So I hadn't really done much else. And anyway, to cut a long story short, my manager said, well, look, if you don't want to do it, at least go down and meet with them. And if you don't get on with them, that's fine. And if they don't, if they don't like you, then you don't have to worry about it. And so they they asked me to take my drums to Air Studios, which at that point was in the centre of London. They moved it out to North Kensington or somewhere, eventually um, Lyndhurst Hall or whatever it is. But at that point, it was right in the centre of London in the shopping district on top of this big block of buildings. It was an amazing studio and amazing albums had been made there. I used to love going there. So they said, bring your drums down to Oxford Street Air Studios. We're mixing the album and, you know, we want to hear you play. So I went down to the studio and they had me play as if I was making their album again. They had me play along to all the tracks. They just muted oh. the drums. But they played me. They said, oh, Jeff's played on the album. And I was a massive Jeff Picaro fan. And I thought, I can't wait to hear this. Yeah. And so they played me each song with what he'd played. And it was just absolutely killer stuff. It was just simple, you know, rock drumming, but he's just mm-hmm. got such a great feel and a great sound. It was really exciting. And so they played me each song, what he'd played. And then they, and then they said, right, you go out and play it. So I played it as if I was redoing it. So I was trying to play Jeff's parts and everything. Was that intimidating? It wasn't really. I mean, I'd done the, I'd done three years with McCartney and, and I also, yeah. I didn't want to do the Dars Traits tour, so I wasn't really intimidated. <laughs> if they turned around at the end of it and said, yeah, that's great, don't call us, we'll call you, we'll call you. <laughs> I wouldn't have really cared in a way. Right. And so I was going into it. I was just fulfilling it for my manager's sake, really. But it was exciting to be in a great studio playing Jeff's parts. I mean, they got an amazing, even my drum sound was amazing because they had all the mics set up and it's a beautiful mm-hmm. studio. So it was just great to hear myself playing and I was playing with Dire Straits and I was copying Jeff's drum parts. So it was good fun day. And then they were all very nice at the end. They said, oh, thanks very much. We'll, we will call you. Don't call us, we'll call you. But anyway, about a week later, they called my manager and said, we definitely want Chris to do this tour. And I said, well, the thing was, that I'd heard for years that Mark, A, he was a perfectionist, and B, he particularly was difficult with drummers. Mm. And that's the, the the pick thing and the Terry Williams thing. You know, they right. had a difficult time with him. And I thought, do I really want to... How wanna... so? Was he, was, like, 
just with, totally critical all the time. You know, you, you hit that like tempo wise or sound everything, or everything, just everything. Really? Anything that he could pick you up on, you know, and if he was in a bad mood that day, it would be the drums that were the problem. If the keyboards were playing the wrong part, it would still be the drums that were the problem. Right. And so it was just like that, really. I just, he just didn't think there were any drummers that were good enough to play in Dire Straits other than maybe Omar Hakim and Jeff Beccaro. Mm. And so I thought, do I want to punish myself for a year out on the road with a perfectionist who's particularly difficult with drummers? And I was still struggling with this whole dilemma. And I spoke to my manager and he said, look, Chris, you'd be absolutely mad not to do it because you've done McCartney People thought that was quite amazing that this guy no one had heard of was playing drums with Paul McCartney. If that's the only thing you ever do, you'll really regret it. If you do this Dire Straits tour, you'll really be on the map as an international mm-hmm. drummer kind of thing. So I still reluctant. I was still reluctant about it, but I just thought, oh, okay, I'll do it. How bad can it be? <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> it was pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was just a really grueling tour. It was a two and a half hour show. At one point, we did 13 shows in a row, traveling every day. As well. I mean, wow. we were staying in great hotels, and we were playing huge arenas in front of massive crowds. So all that was great, but it was just unbelievably hard work, and it was exhausting. And yeah. Mark was, hardly was ever it like, turned around. I was just going to well, say, I was Mark hardly ever the, turned around okay. and smiled at me. He just, he, you know, he would turn around and smile at John or turn around as Paul Franklin... <laughs> Paul Frank, I mean, Mark's massive Nashville fan and, and Paul Franklin, who's like a god pedal steel player in Nashville, he agreed to do the tour. So Mark mm-hmm. was turning around to him and giving him the thumbs up and smiling the whole time. But whenever Mark turned around to me, it was to point out that I'd played something wrong or something. So really? it was just a bit of a grind. Yeah. I mean, did you guys get along or was it just sort of like you were just, he was like the boss and you just he was kind the of boss. came in? And- yeah. Really? And so not to put too fine a point on it, but at the end of that tour, I retired from drumming. <laughs> I just put away really? my drumsticks yeah, and stopped drumming. To- you were just like, I'm totally done with this. Yes. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you thought you, like, that, you thought that was it forever? Well, I just had no confidence left at the end of the tour just to have somebody on your case for wow. a year. I was stupid. I just took it way too seriously. I'm too sensitive and I took it way too seriously. Other people just let it go over their head. Oh, Mark's in a bad mood today or something like that. And just, but I just took it too seriously all the time. And, um, you know, I went into the Dire Straits tour having played with Paul McCartney for three years and played this amazing tour with Paul McCartney. And really and truthfully, it was bigger than Dire Straits. I mean, right. we, were, we were playing two nights sold out at Giants Stadium and the mm-hmm. LA Coliseum and all of Hollywood were coming down to the show. And, and when I started the rehearsals with Dire Straits and Mark was turning around and saying, you're speeding up or you're slowing down. And instead of just saying, no, I'm not, I know what I'm doing. I took it, I took it all too seriously and thought, well, maybe I am speeding up. Maybe I'm slowing down. And, and right. it just went downhill from there. <laughs> I mean, part of it is like, well, then why'd you hire me? Well, I know. You know, it's like if then get someone else who who beats your criteria. What was the, well, I was to be fair, I was the third choice. <laughs> well, 
But yeah, no, I know what you're of, saying. Uh, you know, it was crazy. It was just stupid. And so I let it get to me. And at the end of the tour, I lost my confidence. And, and I was very critical about everything I did, which I still am a bit now. I'm very, I, I analyze what I'm doing, which I never used to do. I used to just have fun. And which is good. I mean, it was good in a way that I, I, I went up another few levels on that tour in that I really started to notice timing and I started to notice dynamics and mm -hmm. everything. And I think it really improved my drumming. I mean, it was like an orchestral concert. The, the material that they had, they played for decades right. and they'd honed it down so that when Mark played a particular note on the guitar, you had to play a particular Tom kind of, it was like that kind of a show. And wow. so it was, it wasn't improvised and so it was like an orchestral concert and everything had to, there was so many sort of ralentandos and tempo changes and dynamics going down to virtually no playing at all up to absolutely maximum volume. So it was an incredible education to work with a perfectionist and yeah. to, and to have that kind of, and after that, I thought of all the years that I played in sort of indie rock bands where no one really cared. And I thought that's a really, that's a shame that, the bands will go and play a show and not really care about the dynamics and not really care if the songs are speeding up or, or not. And I thought it would have been actually better if I appreciated the professionalism of trying to get the show as good as it possibly could be rather than just right. going out and playing the songs at any speed and at any volume. Hmm. What was the, what was the dynamic between playing with someone like Paul? You've already talked about how it was playing with Mark Knopfler was was Paul the opposite? Was he the type of person who would sort of build you up on stage, or or would would give you this like sort of positive reinforcement? Uh, not really, but he wasn't critical. He he just wanted to have a good time. So mm -hmm. you know, if things went wrong, he didn't look around at you daggers or anything like that. But then the next day at soundcheck, he might say, "Oh, we need we need to practice this bit because it wasn't quite right last night or something." But basically. Right. It was an amazing good time show. I mean, the Dire Straits gig was nine people on stage. We had three guitarists with the pedal steel and then Phil Palmer on rhythm guitar, then Mark. And then we had two keyboard players with massive MIDI rigs. So, I mean, the whole show was sort of obliterated by this wall of keyboard sound. Right. And then Danny Cummings on percussion as well. And so it was just a massive band and Chris White on sax. Whereas Paul was much more intimate. It was, I mean, I, I, I won't be critical of Linda because I absolutely loved Linda and she was great to be around, but she wasn't a big presence on stage, but mm -hmm. she was in the band. But it was really kind of a five-piece band just playing rock and roll, like Wicks on keyboards, Robbie on guitar, who's an incredible guitarist, Paul and Hamish Stewart. And and so it was a much more intimate show. And we were playing like bigger stages than Dire Straits in a way and in front of bigger crowds. But to have this like intimate rock band, it was just a, it was, and then it was a lot more was it improvisation. Paul never told me what to play on the drums ever, which was incredible. Even though we were hmm. playing Beatles songs, he never said, oh, listen to what Ringo's doing. I think you should do that. He never said anything. And so I just made up my wow. own mind to play them sympathetically to what Ringo because Ringo was such an incredible drummer on those mm -hmm. songs I just thought I want to be sympathetic to what Ringo did so I played them as closely as I could to what Ringo played them I mm -hmm. used to change my style through the show so we were playing 50s rock and roll and I would play with a slight swing and 
have more of a boomy bass drum kind of way and then the Ringo stuff I try and play in Ringo's like playing weird drum fills halfway through a verse which Ringo did all the time Ringo used to listen to the song used to listen to the vocal he wasn't like playing drums in a kind of drummer's normal way of keeping time and everything he was more Mm -hmm. listening to the vocal so if something happened in the vocal that excited him he would do a little drum fill to back it up and so some of the songs when you listen to them like bar three of the first verse, he suddenly does a roll around the toms and you think that's so weird, but that's what was brilliant about it. Yeah. So when we were doing those songs, I tried to do that. And then when we did the wings stuff and the more contemporary stuff, then I played more like my own style, more like a contemporary, like rim shots and right. riding the crash and all that. So yeah, I played more of a contemporary drummer. It always blows my mind how much flack Ringo gets because people oh, say no. he's, he's not a great drummer. I know. And I just, I, I don't I don't get it. I know. I, I don't I don't understand where that comes from and you know, because you know, what's that old joke that, that people say, Oh, he's not the greatest drummer in the world. He wasn't even the greatest drummer in the Beatles. Well, so so they reckon that John Lennon said that, but I don't even know whether he said it. But if he did say it, it was more his sarcastic sense of humor than Right. I mean, Paul's a good drummer. Actually, Paul used to play my drums at Soundcheck and um, this, the same thing now when you look around the internet, there's a couple of videos of Paul playing drums and there's page after page of comments saying what a rubbish drummer he is, but he isn't. He's a great drummer. He's got a lot of feel and he plays for the song. He's, he's not doing Billy Cobham style drumming. You know? Right, right. But that's not what's needed, so that's totally fine. Actually, the funny thing, the sort of funny story around the Ringo thing was... Um, when we were doing some of the Beatles stuff, it was really hard to do what he did. And like we were doing Let It Be, and I think it's the second or the third verse of Let It Be. He's playing like a nonstop drum solo all the way through the verse. <laughs> and I thought, I've got to do this because I want to make it sound like the Beatles. It was so nerve wracking to do it in a big stadium. But um the it's so ballady like the first verse is just open hi-hat on two and four and mm-hmm. tambourine or something and then he does the chorus normal ringo backbeat type chorus and then the second verse well if i my times in times of trouble mother mary he's going but you put but you put do all the way through the verse and i thought at some point paul's going to turn around and say what the hell are you doing and he never did so i kind of really? kept it up but i would lose my i'd lose my um guts and stop doing it sometimes but <laughs> or did you look so at weird. kind of look at paul out of the corner of your eye like is this probably in the like, rehearsals okay? i probably thought he's gonna think i'm completely mad but he didn't say anything so i just kept doing it but some nights i would think can i have i really got the balls to do this tonight at the la <laughs> forum or something but i did but yeah it's just so weird but i loved all that and i loved the fact that he would sort of randomly go to the ride symbol randomly mm-hmm. in the song and that's what made it so yeah actually um because i'm pretty good friends with greg bizonet and mm-hmm. greg plays in ringo's band and so when they came to australia i went to see the show and i got to meet ringo so that was quite an amazing experience. oh nice and uh and greg said uh ringo ringo didn't say anything but i know he really appreciated the way that you played those beatles songs so yeah i i just wanted to be i just wanted to do the right thing by ringo on that tour yeah 
that makes sense. It's all, it's interesting. The mark of a great drummer. I mean, you look at someone like Greg Bissonette, who you know, who went from playing with David Lee Roth yeah. to Ringo. You know, yeah, and, no. the, and the like, just the wide swath of people that he's. I mean, you too, though. I mean, you're playing in you're playing with with uh, with McCartney, then going to Dire Straits. Like those are two totally different gigs as well. And I was you know. doing pop albums. Well, I mean, I started out doing the Water Boys, which was like Celtic folk rock or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I was doing pop albums all through the 80s, Swing Out Sister, and I did a couple of Pretenders tracks and everything. And so I was doing like all the time I was playing like these rock clubs with these indie rock bands. I was also playing chart hits with other people that's mm-hmm. what i really enjoyed doing i really enjoyed and this is why i had the the problem with the dire straits tour and everything because what i really enjoyed doing before i started with mccartney was just getting a phone call on a thursday can you come to the studio tomorrow and i didn't know anything about it i didn't know the band i didn't know the music and and just this sense of achievement at the end of the day that you'd played something on someone's record that they really liked and you at the beginning of the day you didn't even know who the person was so i just used right. to enjoy doing that yeah you would mention some of the the pop acts that you played with and that Edie Brickell track that you played on. i didn't realize that that was in the 80s i was thinking that song sounds like it was recorded in the 90s well yeah i'm same i thought it was i thought it was 1990 that we recorded it but we recorded it must have been early 1988 and it was already out in the summer of 1988 yeah right so yeah that was a smash hit i know that was a big hit it wasn't such a big hit in the uk which oh, was really? bad for me. I mean, it was a hit, but it wasn't like it was in America. It was massive in America. It was massive. Yeah. But, and I was, um, I mean, I was kind of, I was pretty young when that came out. And I, I mean, I remember that track all, I mean, it was everywhere all the well, time. A lot of people for years, a lot of people thought it was Matt Chamberlain because he's in all the videos. Uh, I was halfway through, I was halfway through doing the McCartney album. I was actually working on the McCartney album and Wix, who is net, who was the keyboard player with McCartney on our tour and has continued being the keyboard player with with McCartney, he was really a studio keyboard player through the 80s. And he used to recommend me, I don't know why, such a nice guy, he used to recommend me for these records now and then. And he recommended me for the Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians record. He was, he was playing keyboards on it. And... Hmm. Um, I can't remember where I was going with this, but oh, I know why it was. So I was I was in the studio with McCartney, and it was as I say, five days a week. And I think Paul, because he had kids at the t- younger kids at the time, though Easter was coming up, and he said we're going to have two weeks off from Easter, go away and have a break, and then come back and we'll continue with the album. Mm-hmm. And around that time, Wix phoned me up and said, "I'm working on this album at Rockfield Studios in South Wales." I'm working on this album and we need a drummer and we want you to come and play the drums on it. I said, oh, I can't do it. I've just got two weeks off from McCartney and I don't want to spend two weeks in the studio when I'm already in the studio with McCartney. And it was another, it was a bit like the Dire Straits thing. I've been a bit stupid over the years turning down stuff that I shouldn't have turned <laughs> down. But I, again, I was sort of saying, oh no, I don't, I need a break. I don't want to be in the studio. And so, and then he got the producer, Pat, to phone me up and he said, um, I'm struggling with the band's drummer, the new Bohemian's drummer, and I really need to get this album done. And I really need you. Wix has recommended you. I really need you to come down and do the drums. So anyway, another long story cut short. I said I would go down and at least meet with them. So I went down mm-hmm. to the studio, met with them, and they were all very complimentary. And we'd love you to play the drums. And 
So I agreed to do it anyway. But um, the drummer in the band, Brandon Ailey, he was actually, he was quite innovative. Well, he was innovative and he was, he was a great drummer and he was perfect for the band actually. But Pat just didn't think he was up for the album or something. And he wanted somebody who was more consistent, I think. And Brandon was more of a vibe and feel drummer. He would play mm-hmm. the song slightly differently on certain times. And Pat was getting frustrated because the the song would be almost how he wanted it as a producer, the the second take or something. And then the third take, it would be different with different fills in different places. Uh. And he just wanted somebody to come and bang it out exactly how he wanted it. Mm-hmm. And so when I turned up for the recording, Brandon was there and obviously there was a horrendously bad atmosphere because the rest of the band had had to vote to get me in to do the drum. Pat had said to Edie and the band, I want to use this British drummer and they'd all had to agree to it kind of thing. So Brandon was there and obviously he was devastated because he'd been in the band for years and this was their first album and he wasn't going to be playing drums on it. Oh. That was a very difficult situation. That is a difficult situation. And probably yeah. put you in, in a sort of a weird predicament. Was he there when you were recording? Yeah, he was. And I mean, it's happened to me. I always used to laugh that if I was playing with a band of a slightly lower level, I might be replacing the drummer in the band. I used to replace drummers all the time in the 80s because you didn't have Pro Tools and sampling right. and things so if they couldn't play to a click and they didn't have a very good drum sound the producer would hire me to do the song so i i um replaced quite a few drummers in the 80s and would they do it where they would name i know that i know uh, i had a conversation with josh freeze and he was saying that he went in and recorded this record and you know kind of snuck in the back door at two o'clock in the morning recorded this record and didn't really want his name on it and oh, okay sort of didn't want to be associated with it and they went to him and they said, listen, you know, the guy, the drummer's still in the band. He's going to tour with them. Do you mind if we just put his name on the record instead of yours? And he's like, that's okay. totally fine. I know. I was kind of the opposite, I'm afraid. Because I, yeah. I was just desperate for any credits, really, you know, to advance my studio. Sure. Career. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, on that Edie Bacall album, I didn't really get a credit. They, they... They didn't say who played the drums. They just had a, a, a little section on the on the sleeve note saying special thanks to and special thanks to Chris Witten, special thanks to Wix. They didn't really say Chris Witten drums or anything. So as I say, really? when the videos when the videos came out or after the album, I think Brandon was so pissed off with the whole thing, he just said, That's it, I'm leaving the band. So they had no drummer at the end of the album. And then they auditioned some people and chose Matt Chamberlain. <laughs> and then he did the videos. And then from there on, I think people, because it was kind of his style as well, kind of slightly mm-hmm. busy and and sort of interesting, innovative. And so I think people assumed Matt had played the drums on the album for years until the, the word has finally gone out that I played on it. But yeah, so I, so I turned up with my drums and I was going to play on these songs and then they played the demo or what they tried to do with Brandon. And the drums were really innovative drums. Like the What I Am is kind of a shuffle, but there's like a double beat hi-hat in there as mm-hmm. well. And it's quite hard that's to a play. Gr- that's a great tune. Yes. It's a really great tune. I mean, feel-wise, it, it's, yeah. it's a great tune. But just overall, like compositionally, it's, it's, it's a really good song. Yeah. So song after song, 
he'd come up with some really innovative drum parts. So I was just copying what his drum parts were. I didn't do anything of my idea. I just played them. I played his drum parts, but I played them in a very consistent manner where the sound was very consistent. The volume was very consistent. And I played the same fills in the set. The producer said, I want that fill going into the chorus. I played it for him. So I think that was what the problem was. Well, I wasn't there when it happened, when it was going down, but I, I, the, the producer said to me, I just want someone consistent. So I presume that's what the problem was mm. before then. But these days they would just work with Brandon and do like five takes and then cut, cut together all the best bits out of the five takes and it wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> so stitch it all, all together. My, and All my Grim Reaper drum replacement work ended as soon as Pro Tools came in. Right. <laughs> and actually it was really toxic for bands because when you replaced... The drummer, the drummer was usually furious and often left the band and then they ended up with no drummer promoting their first album and things. Actually, when you said about the sneaking in, Josh Free sneaking in the back door, usually I worked with one producer who was a really great producer and I got on with him really well and he would use me a lot. And he was quite brutal with other drummers and he would just tell them, you're not playing on this record, I'm going to get Chris Whitten in. And so quite often I'd get a phone call to play with a band in the studio and I'd turn up and the drummer would be sat looking furious in the corner on the <laughs> couch in the control room. You know, and that really wasn't, I felt bad about it, but then it wasn't, you know, oh, well, like I was saying earlier, I got a bit sidetracked. I was replacing drummers in debut bands. And then when I was playing on records, the producer was often trying to replace me <laughs> at one point. <laughs> At one point during the McCartney album, one producer said, you know, this track would sound so much better if Jim Keltner was playing on it. And we could fly him out. He'd be here tomorrow. And Paul, to give Paul massive credit, he said, no, Chris is the drummer in the band. We're not getting any LA session guys in. Chris is playing on the album. That's awesome. End of story. So that was great. But it was just funny that around the time that I was replacing a drummer on a new Bohemians album. Some other producer was trying to replace me on another <laughs> album. So what goes around comes around. I guess so. I guess so. What's your take on the, on now the fact that you, we do have pro tools and you can just sort of go in and, and, uh, and chop it up and piece it together to make it sound good. Do you think that it, do you think that it lowers the barrier to entry a little bit of, of, musicians going into the studio and doesn't require as much skill and and well the thing is there aren't any records with real drummers on anymore in a way well you know if you look at the top 40 it's all programmed Mm -hmm. stuff and so if you're going to have a real drummer you might as well have a real drummer but i think you know there's a cost to it i mean on the positive side if you're a drummer in a band you won't get replaced by somebody like me but then when they've recorded the tracks, they send the hard drive into the next room and some assistant spends a whole day editing all the best bits together. So there's a cost to that. You know, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of work editing, to, editing together. So what I'm saying is that if you're a really good studio player like Greg Bislett or Kenny Aronoff or Josh Freeze, there's still a premium to getting somebody like that in because you don't have to do all this editing. Mm-hmm. You know the sound's going to be right and you know it's going to groove and you don't have to fix it afterwards. But if you're dealing with a ba- an original band, like the New Bohemians, or like Coldplay or someone like that, then obviously it's less toxic 
if you can use all the members in the band and just fix any bits that need fixing. So it's much better from that point of view. Sure. I mean, in the 80s, it was the battle of the drum machine, you know, for me. Mm-hmm. I, often I get called in with this producer that I used to really enjoy working with. He would often do the whole album with programmed drums. And it was, it started out being like Lin drums and samples and things. And then, and by the mid 80s, it was all Fairlight and stuff. So it was quite, it sounded like real drums a lot of the time. Right. And so he would do the whole album. And then before he mixed it, he would call me up and say, come in and play on some songs. And so I would take my drums in and I'd play on the whole album. And then he would decide at the mix whether he preferred the real drums version or whether he preferred the programmed drums version and so actually one of the worst times that happened he phoned me up and he said i'm producing was not was in london and would you come and play some drums so i took my drums down there and he said to me up front he said we've done the whole album with program drums there's lots of 808 stuff and um 909 and 808 it's really groovy and don and dave love it but I just wanted to try and do some stuff with real drums just in case. But I have to tell you that Don and Dave really love it the way it is. And so I played on some of the hits like Walk the Dinosaur and things like that. Mm-hmm. But then when the album came out, I wasn't on any of it. <laughs> they just decided to go with the program stuff. So that was really? a bit gutted about that, yeah. Well, and you were doing, you were sort of playing in both in both worlds because you were obviously doing sessions and things like that with live drums, but then you were also recording samples and things for yes. electronic drums and, and for sampling machines and things like that. Well, that really only happened after the Dire Straits thing. Is, uh, towards the end of the Dire Straits thing, I just thought, I, I don't want to be on tour anymore. And I lost my confidence as a drummer and I didn't think I was going to go back to studio drumming. And so this friend of mine said, you know what you should do is you should buy some gear, set up a home studio and do music for film and TV. And so I thought, oh, that's an exciting new thing to do. Mm-hmm. So I ended the Dire Straits tour, I put my drums in storage and I went out and bought like a Roland sampler and uh, the, one of the early, a Mac 2CE, you know, with four right. megabytes of memory and all that kind <laughs> of stuff. And the early version of Logic... E-Magic, it wasn't called Logic, was it? It was E-Magic Notator or something. Anyway, an early version of that. There was no audio recording. It was just MIDI at that time. Right. It spat out MIDI. And so I used to load up the Roland sampler with either loops or or samples and play it all by MIDI. And I did all this film and TV music. Anyway, as the film and TV music scene went along in the 90s, Hold on, I have to, I have to, hold on, I have to ask this because I'm guessing you didn't do a lot of film and TV music before. So how do you just go buy some gear and say, oh, I'm going to start making music for film and TV and just get into it? Well, it, it was a punt, but I, I went to music college for four years mm-hmm. and I, I wrote music when I was at music college and it was part of the course. And we also had student bands and we used to play our own material. It was at the height of fusion. It was like Weather Report and, and also Earth, Wind and Fire and people like that. So I, had, I was in a bunch of student bands Mm-hmm. And so we all wrote music. Everybody took music to the, the rehearsal and we all played music. So I was writing music then. And then when I started doing drumming, you know, everybody had this attitude that the drummer isn't a musician. And so mm-hmm. I just put the whole 
when I first started playing in bands, I probably said, why are you going to A in the bridge? You should go to B flat. It would be much more interesting. And the songwriter went, yeah, right. Anyway, we're going to A. And so I just gave up chipping in ideas at that point. And so I just became a drummer and I didn't think anything about writing music or getting involved in arrangements. I just played the drums for like 10 years. And so when this friend of mine said you should do music for film and TV, I thought, well, I can write music. I haven't done it for years, but I can write music. And obviously I'd made money doing McCartney for three years and Dire Straits. So I thought, you know, even if it takes me a year to to get a gig and it takes me a year to learn how to do it, I didn't know anything. I'd never owned a computer. I didn't know anything about MIDI or computing or anything wow. like that. So I thought, if, even if it takes me a year to learn that stuff, I can afford to live because mm-hmm. I have money in the bank. Right, right, right. And so yeah, it was, he was a, a good friend, actually. And he said, you can do some projects with me. You know, I, I, I'm doing quite bigger movies. He was doing quite big UK movies, British films. But he was also doing, like, one-hour documentaries for the Discovery Channel and things like that at the time. So he oh, said, cool. you know, if I get a one-hour documentary, you can do half the music and I'll tell you what you've done wrong and help you. And so the first like year that I was doing it, I was doing stuff with him and he was showing me how to use the computer and saying, oh, it would have been better if you'd done this at the music point and teaching me about it. Mm-hmm. And um, so anyway, I started doing that and I was quite in the lower level of like documentary, I enjoyed doing documentaries. I didn't want to do dramas really or movies. It seemed like a lot of pressure, but in the lower level, like I did a whole series for discovery um, called the ultimate guide. And I did a bunch of stuff for the BBC and channel four in the UK. And um, when I used to go to meet the director the first time and the film editor, and they showed me the rough cut of the, documentary or whatever they said we've put some music in so you know what we want and it was always dj shadow <laughs> um uh massive attack right stuff like that and it was all like sick it was all it was the start of that whole trip hop sort of drum loop 60s drum like we were talking about Dylan Wissing and how he's he knows all about that kind of the breakbeat type thing right and so um, I didn't know anything about, I'd never, I'd only ever played contemporary drums kind of thing. I didn't even think about how, how um, Jabbo Starks or anybody like that played or how they got their sound or how they were recorded. Mm-hmm. And so all these film directors were saying, we want something like this. And then I went home and I thought, well, how am I going to do that? Because I don't, I can't <laughs> record drums. I'm not going to sample funky drummer off James Brown and put it on a, discovery channel documentary because i'll just get sued right so so after a about a year of this of trying to replicate all these retro drum loops i said to this friend of mine we've got to book a studio and just record a bunch of retro drum loops because i've got no material to work with um uh, I, I desperately need a lot of varied drum loops because all the music that i'm being asked to do for film and tv is all based around these 60s Motown and 70s funk drum loops. And hmm. so for a year after that, every few months, every month or so, we just book a studio and go in and record a whole day of drumming and edit it up and mix it and put 
spring reverbs on the snare and do weird EQ and have no bass drum in it like some of those old 60s things you can hardly hear the bass drum. Yeah. And so we really got into the the technology of how did they record those drums with two mics or a ribbon mic and, and a D19 on the mm-hmm. snare and a ribbon. We really got into that whole, and then we started booking all these weird esoteric studios that had vintage consoles and valve compressors, and we started getting into that. And which is the first couple of things we did. We went to Air Studios and we got the stuff home. It just sounded too good. I just thought, we can't, I can't use this. It just sounds yeah. like it was recorded yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we need to find some rubbish project studios with bad <laughs> equipment and record like that. And I started to buy, it was in the early days of eBay, and I just started to trawl eBay late at night and buy really cheap snare drums and battered mm-hmm. kits and so, yeah, so that's how we got into the sampling thing. We started making all these drum loops, and I started using them in my film music, and the film directors were really pleased with how it sounded. And, and also it was like beginning of Chemical Brothers and, like I say, Massive yeah. Attack. So they, so they were putting the drum loops through modular synths and distorting them and frequency shifting them and all that kind of stuff. So I really enjoyed doing that. I really enjoyed the sound design side of it. And then I was on the internet one day and somebody on some forum was raving about Tracks new drum kit from hell drum sample product. And so I looked it up and they'd sampled, these guys in Sweden had minutely sampled this kit and it was getting a lot of rave reviews on the internet. And so I said to my friend, why don't we write to them and say we're doing drum sampling as well and maybe we can do a product with them. And so Mm -hmm. we wrote to these guys in Sweden and they wrote straight back and said, yeah, we'd love to do that. We'll come to London and we'll have a a few days in the studio. And so, yeah, so we booked four days in the studio and I took all my drums and we sampled all my drums and that came out on TuneTrack. It was called, it was a product called Custom and Vintage because I'd, I'd been buying all these vintage kits and Gretsch Round Badge and Camco and things like that. And I had my Noble and Cooley drums from McCartney and everything. So we called it Custom and Vintage. And it became one of their biggest, it was about their biggest selling expansion, sample expansion pack for a while. It did really well. And so since then, just as a side business, we've always done drum samples. So yeah, in a way, it was like you say, it was if you can't beat them, join them. So if you're looking to get a new kit, you have two options. One, you can check out some pictures online. You can go to the store. You can see what they have there. You can drive to another store. You can find a couple more models and you can drive yourself insane driving all over the place trying to see what the kit that you want looks like. Or you can design yourself the perfect sonar kit using their SQ2 drum configurator. And this configurator allows you to build a kit from scratch, or you can use some of their predetermined configurations and then just modify them. But you can modify everything, the sizes, the configuration, the hardware, the color, all of that stuff. And you can make it to your exact specifications. Not only that, you can get an overhead view, you can get a 3D image of it. All of that is all built into the drum configurator. To build your dream sonar kit, go to sq 2 dash drumsystem.com or just google sonar sq2 you'll find it check it out the sonar drum configurator we booked this studio in london with an amazing vintage emi tg console and i took all my drums and as i said i've been on ebay for a few years and i had a gretsch round badge kitchen a camco 
kit and a Camco Oakhorn kit and my Noble and Cooley kits from Dire Straits and Paul McCartney. So, yeah, we we spent four days sampling, which is, that's another trip, <laughs> sampling. Yeah. I think people, when you go on forums and things and people are complaining about drum sample products, oh, they didn't. They didn't sample the bell of the hi-hat or they haven't sampled the rim click on the fourth tom and everything. They should go and do a sampling session because it's an absolute nightmare. I was going to ask, it has to be, I'm guessing it has to be very meticulous and... and It's just so non-musical, you know, there's no music involved. You just sit behind a kit and they go, okay, bass drum. And you do like 100 or 200 hits on the bass drum and you hit the bass drum and you have to wait for all the toms to stop ringing and then you hit it again and then the toms ring and then you try and hit it slightly less loud because you have to get all the dynamics there's no way that a human of what i've discovered or maybe steve gad can do it i don't know but (laughs) what i've discovered is that there's no way for a human to predict exactly how loud they're going to play something if you're a drummer, you can probably play four or five levels of volume. You can play a soft hit, a medium soft hit, a medium hit, a loud hit. But if somebody says, I want 100 hits going from loud to soft, after about 20, you've run out. You're already playing as right. softly as you possibly can. So it's a bit of a nightmare. So I got better at it over the years. But And, and you know, just like rim shots, they have to be so... You can't have a drum sample product where every rim shot sounds different. They all have to sound consistent. So cymbals are the worst because cymbals just ring on forever. And so when you're sampling a a snare drum, you would sample like a cross stick, center hits, edge hit, rim shot. So when you start a snare drum, you think for the next hour, we're going to be sampling this snare drum. But when it comes to doing a ride cymbal, you think for the next three hours, we're going Ugh. to be sampling this ride cymbal. And you're going... you need sort of every position on the, on the but ride. But no, no, it's just All the, the length deca- of the cymbal. Of- you know, you just go ting like that. And a minute, you're still waiting for it to die away. <laughs> and then you because go, you need ting. that in the sample. Yeah, you have the to whole thing. have it. Yeah. And so, that, whereas a bass drum is the easiest thing to sample because there's only one articulation, really. It's a normal hit, and that's it. And they're so quick to die away, especially if you've got, like, padding in the bass drum. Mm. So you hit your bass drum, and then a second later, you're hitting it again. It's great. But the snare drum's a little bit longer. Tom's are longer again. But the cymbals, I used to hate doing the cymbals. Ugh, that sounds brutal. It does, <laughs> and, and like you said, there's... There's no musicality involved with it, no. so it's not like you leave there and you're like, "Oh, that was a great." Oh no, session. it was great to play with the guys. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's actually quite stressful because sometimes you spend an hour sampling the snare drum, and the recording engineer says, "Oh, wait a minute! Oh, one of the mics has gone down. We've got to do it all again." And you, like, oh, oh my god! And so the thing is. It's rewarding at the end because when you hear it in the software and it sounds amazing, you think, oh, this is a great job. I'm glad I've done it. But when you're actually doing it, it's really quite painful. And which is why, and again, when you're on like drum forums and things and they say, oh, why hasn't anyone ever asked Vinnie Kaluta to do a drum sample product? Or why hasn't anyone asked Jay Waronka to do a drum sample product? I'm sure they have been asked, but they're just... Think, they just no, don't want to do I'm it. not going to spend all day in a studio. They did a Neil Peart drum sample, 
another company did a Neil Peart drum sample product, and he's got an enormous kit. It was when he had that Chinese kit thing mm-hmm. with the Chinese symbols on it. I think he came, his drum tech set up the drums, which probably took like a day, and they, they used about 100 microphones, I think. Right. His drum tech set up the drums. Then the next day, Neil came in, played it, and said, yeah, that's right, it all sounds right. And then Neil left, and then somebody else hit all the drums. There was no way Neil Peart was going to spend five days tapping yeah. 20 toms and five I was going to ask that, and I was thinking, okay, maybe this is a stupid question, but can you get Jeff Picaro's drums, right? Or can you get, you know, obviously, because he's not with us anymore, but if you take someone, like, can you get take Vinnie Cauda's yes. drums and then have someone else play them? It doesn't need to... St- it doesn't need to have his feel, No, but this right? is the thing. You can from a marketing point of view, but from a sound point of view, everybody knows it's the drummer, not the drum. So it's, you know... Does that does that hold true in samples I, as well? Definitely. Definitely. Does it? Yeah. I mean, not well. so badly, because you're not playing a song, so you don't get the feel of Vinny, and you don't mm. get the touch of Vinny, but there's definitely a, an aspect of the sound. If you got Vinny to do single rim shots on a snare drum and then got some other drummer who wasn't didn't have his skill level to do the rim shots it would definitely sound different we'll call him we'll call that other drummer nick ruffini we'll call him that okay <laughs> probably me but no there's definitely there's definitely you would get hired to, to replace me that's what would but i mean you know it's definitely the the drummer's feel the drummer's touch on the drum definitely yeah and so I've never believed there are there aren't many there really aren't many drum sample products where they don't use the drummer that they've told you that they've used. Right. And so yeah, so you know, if there was a Vinny drum sample product, it would have to be him playing it, I think. Otherwise I think it's false advertising. If it just yeah. turns out to be his drums and he's okayed <laughs> it and then gone to the Ivy for lunch while somebody else right. did all the work. <laughs> I don't think it would work. <laughs> got you. Uh, and that's a, that's a world that I don't know much about in terms of uh, recording, you know, recording the sampling and stuff like that. So I wasn't sure how much of it, you know, how much of it, how much of the, the actual drummer uh, plays into it or if it's just the instrument selection. How do you, do you like the process of programming after, you know, after you've recorded everything and, and you're going back into the studio just to, re, to, to program no. drums for a no. track or no, not really. No, uh, no. no, I like, see, I've, when I sort of morphed out of the film and TV, that I, I found that film and TV didn't really suit my personality. And this is how the film and TV thing goes. They play you what they want you to do, a DJ shadow record or a massive attack record or something. You go home, you do your version, you take it in, and they tell you everything they don't like about it. It's too long, the bass is too loud, or we don't like the drum sound, can you do it again? And you do that, that's the whole process of doing music for film and TV. And then when you give them the version that they really like, they don't say anything, they just use it. And so they they don't phone you up and say, I love this, what you've done. You might if you were Hans Zimmer, maybe. Right. They don't, once they're happy with it, they just don't call you anymore. You've done the job. (laughs) And so for years I was doing film and TV. The only feedback I was getting was negative feedback about, can you change that note? Can you make it shorter? Can you make it longer? And um, so it just didn't suit my personality. Obviously 
the same film director might phone you up a few months later and say, I'm doing another film. Can you do the music? And then they might say, I really enjoyed what you did on the last one. And so you get a bit of positivity there. But generally, sure. when you're working on it, they only call you when they're not happy with it. And once they're happy with it, they don't call you anymore. Right. So I just found it a negative experience. So I morphed out of doing film and TV. And um, and then that's this whole idea of doing the remote drumming, going back to studio drumming in a way. Uh, mm -hmm. from rem remotely and now i if i'm doing pro i'm really enjoy doing my own music and doing programming my own music but i'm really only interested in doing non-drumming things so so electronic stuff and using electronic drum sounds and making up i i enjoyed when i was doing film and tv one of the things i enjoyed the most was sound design so now i've got loads of modular synths and vintage synths and things like that and i will happily spend a whole day making drum sounds making bass drums and weird percussive sounds from my analog synths and mm -hmm. so i prefer to do that than try and the thing is there's always a compromise with drum software and being a drummer i just think why should i spend all day trying to make drum software sound like me it would be easier if i just played it just I played could it. do it in an hour if i yeah. played it and so that's my attitude to drum programming. I can't be bothered to make drums samples sound like a real drummer. If I'm going to do programming, I'd rather make it not sound like a real drummer and have it sound electronic. So that's what I, yeah. I do now. When you say sound design, explain what that is a little bit. Well, um, it's, it's not using, effectively, it's not using other people's presets, not using patches from sample libraries and things like that. So the, when I started out doing film and TV, I didn't know what I was doing. So I just like bought Spectrasonics, you know, those guys, Eric Persing, out there out of LA. They're massive mm -hmm. in film and TV. One of their first products was a thing called Distorted Reality, which was a sample CD of all these synth sounds and percussive sounds and i just used to use that on everything i just load up one of their synth patches and play it job done and a lot of people still do that and then after a while i thought you know it'd be more fun if it was my sounds that i wasn't using somebody else's sound so i would spend ages like you know dialing up my own synth sound or plugging in like a telephone exchange the modular synth and so i knew that when i delivered the music to someone it was all unique no one else had done it and it's the same, mm -hmm. you can make, um, like in the 70s, the early pioneers of electronic music like Tomita and Wendy Carlos and Jean-Bichel Jarre and everything, they made, and Kraftwerk famously, they made drum sounds from the basic raw um, ingredients of synthesizers. And so you've got the attack. When you're playing a drum, you've got the attack sound, which is a mm -hmm. hard clack and then you've got the tone of it, and then you've got like noise of the skin vibrating. And so you can do all that with a synthesizer. You can get like a white noise with a very short attack on it and, and have that going. And then you layer an a sine wave oscillator under that, and you can go, the pitch can go up and down like a tom does. Mm -hmm. And it's all, I mean, I'm not trained in sound or anything, but it's all physics, you know, of sat, right. sine waves and noise and pink noise and everything. So you can make amazing drum sounds just, and I enjoy doing it, just making drum sounds all day, bass drums and snare drums. You obviously have a lot more, you might have a, a noise, a short noise for the attack of a, of a stick hitting a snare drum head. Then you have a longer noise 
darker noise for the snare buzz underneath and you still have like an oscillator playing the tone of the drum right. so i used to enjoy doing stuff like that and there are tutorials online there are synth tutorials that you can make any drum sound from a triangle to a crash cymbal using synthesis i've got to go through it one day it'd be interesting using ring modulators and stacked stacked sine waves to to make you know gongs and things but in the in the mm-hmm. 70s that's how they did all their drum sounds craft work and people like that and that's what i i find that is an interesting gig doing that mm. it is that isn't that's a world that i know absolutely nothing about it's it's yeah. i know that uh i know that you can go down a rabbit hole with that stuff and be and you know you could be spending decades on yes. on working on sounds and things like that and i know you know yourself and i like dylan talks about uh some different things about like getting different sounds and and i know it's a never-ending it's a never-ending journey but it's always interesting to hear someone who's doing it because i i don't like i said i know nothing about nothing about that world but but i mean i'm not a perfectionist and so i'm not a perfectionist so i i tend to think the quickest route i can get to something and as soon as i'm happy with it i i'm i'm okay to say i've signed off on that that's the best i can do so you know it might take me five or ten minutes to make a bass drum sound and if i'm if i'm doing a drum recording i might it might take me an hour and two or three takes to do a take that i'm happy with you know and i've learned over the years working with some amazing artists they they want character you know that if you if you scuff your drumstick against the tom going to the crash cymbal that's often the bit that they like the best out of your drum <laughs> take and you go into the control room and say oh, i'm gonna do that bit again they go oh, no 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 i love that bit so you know and i think now with all the programming that's going on and the top 40 being full of auto-tuned beat corrected drums i think more and more artists value the humanity of 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 a drummer making a mistake or hitting a cymbal slightly wrong or yeah i mean that that shows then that you are working with real humans it isn't yeah. perfect machines mm-hmm. yeah i like the i like the imperfections yeah for sure that's to me what makes music music um i have one last question for you and i this is sort of based on the what we were talking about earlier when you had left dire straits and and you talked about putting your drums away and and not having the confidence that you had prior to playing with them and and you know saying okay I want to retire how did you build that confidence back up i think that one of the most important things in this industry is one you have to be able to take criticism but how do you how can you take that criticism and not let it destroy you as a player and that you can never come back luckily you came back from from this experience but how do you? How did you get over, or how did you I mean, gain I don't, some of that? Honestly, back? I don't really think I have. It, really, it completely changed me. I mean, before that, I was a very sort of happy-go-lucky, quite self-confident person. I mean, the I got the phone call in 1987. I was playing small clubs with Julian Cope, and I got a phone call can you be in this warehouse on Friday afternoon and play with Paul McCartney? And I just took my drums down and played with him. I didn't right. like fall in a heap on the floor. I mean, I didn't think it's not like, Oh, I am the best drummer in London or anything like that. But you just think, you know, if they've called me, they've called me for a reason. I'm going to just do the best I can. And whatever happens happens. Right. And so the, the, the whole experience of being on the road for a year and a half and have someone 
criticize everything you do that kind of just blew that whole thing it was no way to mentally get over that really so i kind of learned and it's all comes from other it comes from other people really and so when i do a studio session and when i do a gig or something the other people in the band say oh the bands never sounded better than tonight when you played with us we really loved it or if you do a studio session they say oh i'm really so happy that you came and played on our record we loved the drums and so you you recover a bit from from all the positive feedback you get from people but i'm much more right. self-critical now than i ever was in the 80s and i think it's made me a better drummer now that i would let things go in the 80s i would let things go that i wouldn't let go now i would say no i i need to work on that some more and so i'm right it's it's a negative in a way that i'm a lot more self-critical and but i i i'm accepting so if i do work with someone in the studio and and we've done like three takes and I'm saying, no, I'm still not happy with it. I need to do it another couple of times. And they say, no, we're, we're done with it. It's good. I'm accepting. I, oh, great. I'm glad you're happy with it. And I'll walk away quite happy. But if it, but I'm still very self-critical. And I, if I do a show with Chris White, the sax player from Dire Straits, when I play with their band, he's unbelievably you know generous and he just says oh the band sounded great tonight we love your drumming chris we wish you'd play with us more often and it was a great show tonight and i and i'm thinking no i was i was not very good tonight and he's no you were great it was really good please it was excellent so it's just being around positive people that Mm -hmm. makes you feel better about it but i don't think i've lost the self-criticism that i picked up over those years wow wow I wonder if it's a matter of <clears throat> using it to your advantage and then all the other stuff that's not to your advantage, trying to shed, you know, trying to shed those ideas. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I have used it to my advantage. I mean, I'm still not worried. I'm not, I, I wouldn't not go for a gig because I didn't think I was good enough or anything like that. But, right. you know, if if I'm doing something and somebody says, oh, it felt like it was speeding up, I immediately... Instead of just thinking, oh, no, it didn't, I immediately think, oh, it probably was, and then I start to worry about it. And so I've lost a bit of my own self. I second-guess myself a bit too much, probably. Right, right. I think the the thing that's important that you mentioned, too, is getting around positive people, getting around people that yes. lift you up. Because the, the, the opposite has that negative effect of, of people criticizing you and cutting you down and things like that. So, I mean, I've always been a right confidence circle. player. You know, in sports, you've got... You've got the again everything against adversity type players, and then you've got the confidence players. And I've always been a confidence player. I actually play better if I'm working with somebody who says, "I love your drumming. I love what you're playing." I actually work harder and try and play even better, and I and I get more enjoyment out of that. But if I'm working with somebody who says, "I don't like what you're doing," and you're not as good as you think you are, then I sort of retreat and go, oh, "I don't want to do this anymore." And so. I, I'm not the kind of person that say you're wrong and I'm going to prove you wrong. <laughs> I'm right. more kind of take it on board and go, you're right. I'm not very good. And that's not a good way to be, but I've always been more of a confidence player than, than somebody who's available, uh, who's able to rise above adversity, I guess. Yeah. Well, if it's any consolation, I think that your, your resume uh, speaks for itself in terms oh, of, thank you. In, in terms of, uh, what you are as a as a player and who you are as a player 
Um, so where, if people want to follow along, keep an eye on what you have going on, is Instagram the best Instagram, place to do it? Or? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Instagram. I'm not a massive fan of social media, and I really enjoy doing uh, – well, I make videos, and I really enjoy doing photography and things like that. So when I was thinking about social media, I decided to just do Instagram. Mm-hmm. I tried to do Facebook for a while, but I couldn't really understand it. And so, yeah, just Instagram, basically. I think you're better off without Facebook. Yeah. Just my personal <laughs> no, well, now I, I, now I feel I am with all the comings and goings with, um, yeah, the Facebook algorithm and everything, but um, yeah. politics. But uh, also YouTube. I put videos up on YouTube because Instagram, it's harder to put longer videos. I'm actually going to try, now that I've got this studio set up, I've done one. I did a, I did a video about calling Elvis when I talked about, actually, I'm going off on tangents, but somebody on Instagram actually contacted me and said, you know, you've got an amazing legacy and no one sees you around. You should really make videos and teaching people about the songs like the Edie Brickell song, What I Am and stuff like that. Because people want to know about that stuff. And I said, I don't think they do want to know. That was years ago. They don't want to know about it. He said, no, people really want to know about it. And so I did a little clip playing what I am and put it on Instagram. And I got so much positive feedback, people saying, oh, I've always wanted to know how to play that. I loved it. And so a couple of weeks ago, I did one about the Dire Straits song, Calling Elvis, which is one of Jeff's great drum parts that he played. Mm -hmm. And and I've had a lot of positive feedback about that. People saying, I never knew it was like that. I'm so great. I love that song. I'm so glad that you've shown us how to play it and how you would play it and so I'm going to be doing, so the long, the long story short again, I'm going to be doing that over the next year or so, probably just occasionally putting up videos of tracks that I've worked on and explaining how I did them and how you nice. play them. I have, uh, I just pulled up your, uh, your Instagram page right here or your, uh, your YouTube page. So we'll make sure to link to that in yeah. the show notes. So there's not much on it at the moment, but I'm, I'm, I was going to do one this week actually, but one of my microphones died on me. So I had to. Because it will take, it's a vintage Neumann mic. It might take a few weeks to fix it. So I had to buy a couple of replacement mics. And so I'm waiting for those to arrive at the moment. And then I'll make this video. So I'm going to do another classic track video in the next week or so, which I was, which would have been coming out today, but I couldn't do it because the mic failed on me. Well, we'll get people over to your YouTube channel. And then when all the, when anytime new ones come out, they can, they can check them out. I think that would be great. Um, well, Chris, I thank you for spending all this time. I could, these stories, I mean, I could sit here for hours listening to, to, uh, to your stories. I, I really enjoy not only the, the backstory of how things happen, but also understanding sort of the progression of, of, you know, how a career takes shape and things like that. So I really appreciate that. Uh, Dylan Wissing, thank you for, for connecting Chris and I, I appreciate yeah, that. Thanks for that. And, uh, just Thank you for for being a part of this. I hope that you well, been stay safe great and to talk and I hope I've not been too negative about dice. I've never really talked about it before, but I thought I figured, you know, a, a, what, the number one drumming podcast. I might as well talk about it. I've <laughs> Set never the record really talked straight. about it. Yeah. No, I I I think that it was good. Uh, I think it's important. For- you talk to people and they just think the whole thing's about parties and MTV and champagne in your bath and everything. And I'm really passionate about the fact that all these all all drummers 
all musicians generally work incredibly hard to get anywhere. It's so hard to get anywhere in the music industry. And I yeah. admire all the musicians that I don't like the music, all the death metal drummers and everything. I don't like the music, but I just admire them for doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think people, it's interesting for people to hear what goes on in the background. It isn't all parties. And I mean, that Dire Straits tour, for example, it was such a tough show, two and a half hour energy show. At the end of the show, I just used to go back to the hotel and chill out on the bed and eventually go to sleep. Uh, there was no way you could do that show and be out partying with the chicks and taking drugs or having a hangover the next day. There was just no right. way you could do it. You would yeah. have just collapsed. Mm -hmm. I think that when the big misconception is that once you land that big gig or once you sign that record deal or something yes. like that, you're on easy street, but that's, yeah, that's, right. that's when the work begins. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, that's when, yeah, that's when I'm sure Mark was under pressure, which is why he was critical of people in the band. And I know Paul was under pressure, you know, the first time Paul playing in America for over 10 years and, You've got Paul Simon and Michael Jackson and Stevie Wonder in the audience. It's a lot of pressure on him. So yeah. it's pressure on everybody. It's not easy street, as you say. It's it's actually more pressure doing those shows than it was doing the little indie rock bands in um, Toad's Place in New Jersey or something. There was no pressure at all doing that. But once you're right. playing Giant Stadium and 80,000 people bought their tickets six months beforehand, that's when the pressure is, definitely. Yeah, that's that's big. That's major. I mean, that's the major leagues right there. Yeah. Anyway, it's been lovely talking to you. Thanks for having me on. Likewise. It's been absolutely great. Thanks very much, it's, Nick. Yeah, of course. It's been my pleasure and I uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. There you have it. The one and only Mr. Chris Witten. And you can check out the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session six one zero. Also, if you want to sign up for the mailing list, you can do that at drummersresource.com. I send out an email every Friday to let you know episodes that have been released and then any other things that I think that you'll find valuable and find useful. And if you dig the podcast, do me a favor, leave a rating, leave a review. You can do it on iTunes. It's super simple. You go on, you leave as many stars as you'd like, hopefully five, and then you can also write a review and talk about how much you like the podcast. But the one negative thing about it, I can't respond to them. So if you have left a rating or a review, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And the reason why I ask for them all the time is because one, it helps us show up higher in the search results, but then it also, when people are looking for drumming podcasts to listen to, lets people know that this is a good one to listen to and lets people know what they can expect from the podcast. So if you could do that, I would appreciate it very, very much. It takes about a minute so you can do that on iTunes, like I said. And other than that, that's all I got this week. So until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.